We're reading 1 John chapter 4 and just verses 13 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. May God add understanding now to the reading of his word. Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I, uh, when I prepared this sermon, I failed to remember that this is the one that there is no childcare. So <laughs> I will try to add some, some color to it for the kids sitting in. Um, I will, yes. <laughs> I'll, I hope it is edifying for even our little ones. A few weeks back, um, during Advent, Josh preached uh, a mini-sermon on love as, as he lit the, the love candle. Uh, he mentioned today, love has kind of become almost a nonsensical term, holding almost zero value. Uh, he asked, is, is love a passionate desire, a, warm, a feeling of warm affection, a great interest or pleasure in something? Or is it, as, as DC Talk famously asked, is love, said, is love merely a verb? And then he asserted that the, the biblical answer is all of the above. Um, he dealt broadly on the topic of love, and he touched on, on the foreknowledge of God's love. And we're going to, today's sermon, even though it's on the text, is basically an expanded treatment of the, the phrase, God is love. It's, it's another topical. You're going to think if you came here for expository preaching that that's all we preach, but it's actually quite rare we preach topical sermons, but... If you consider it an exegetical, an expository sermon on God is love this morning, I'll, I'll appreciate that. I have a, a family member, someone close to me, who holds to a belief, a weird one. She says that everyone is love. <clears throat> they, they think of love as this kind of universal pantheistic principle, this idea that is woven into everything. It's present everywhere, in everyone, all around us. The Beatles song sang, all you need is love. Love is all you need. They, they, the Beatles would like to tell us that life will be, make much more sense if viewed through the lens of love. But I think the flower children of the 60s, and they quickly came to understand um, that it's difficult to love unlovable things. And, and my family member who holds that all is love, everyone is love, she's the first person to critique the shortcomings of others. Clearly, love, as defined by the Beatles, is, is not all you need. Nor can we say that everyone is love. It truly doesn't make any sense. Christian teaching is far more clear. We have been created in the image and likeness of him who is love. We are the image bearers of God who is love. Uh, we mar that image. We do vandalism to that image. We fail to properly reflect the God who is love. 
And it's important to note that this passage says God is love. This is not a statement of equivalency. It's not God equals love. If it were, we could reverse the statement and say, love is God. And I, I assert that that's what the Beatles and what this family member of mine have done. They've lifted up this ideal, this abstract notion of love to be God. when that's not what Scripture says. It's not a statement of equivalency. God is love. It's a one-sided statement. But what does this mean? Does this mean that God is love in the way we get to define what love is? Or does it mean that God defines what love is and we should just adjust all of our definitions accordingly? Um, Is anybody familiar with ChatGPT? It's an AI bot. They actually have programmed this computer program that you can go onto the website and you can ask basically a robot questions. And this robot gives you an answer. And it's, uh, it's kind of groundbreaking stuff in artificial intelligence. And you can actually have a conversation with this robot and it learns through dialogue. It learns through scouring the depths of the internet. It's kind of uncanny and unnerving actually. But <clears throat> I asked ChatGPT this chatbot to tell me about the love of God as demonstrated through Jesus Christ. (laughs) And this was its response. Here with critical ears, but also be astounded at the AI. So, in Christianity, I should read it in a robot voice, but I won't. In Christianity, the love of God is most often associated with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Through his words and actions, Jesus demonstrated the boundless, unconditional love that God has for all people. He taught that God's love is inclusive and extends to everyone, regardless of their background or circumstances. He also showed that this love is not limited by human concepts of justice or fairness, but rather it is a love that seeks to redeem and restore people, even those who have turned away from God. That's a... It's a heck of a response from a computer. (laughs) Um, It's not my task this morning to unpack what some advanced computer program said about God's love. We're going to return to Scripture shortly to determine what it says about God's love. But I do find it interesting, nonetheless, because this chatbot has has scoured the depths of the information provided by humans online about the love of God, and this is what it came up with. This truly is demonstrative. This truly is indicative of what the love of God is what man thinks the love of God is. Um, So I'll list just kind of some key features. God's love is boundless and unconditional. It's for all people. It's inclusive and extends to everyone regardless of background or circumstances. It's not limited by human concepts of justice or fairness. It's a love that seeks to redeem and restore people and even those people who have turned away from God. There's something appealing about this definition to us, a, a God who loves us without precondition or bounds, all of us, inclusively, regardless of whatever we do or whoever we identify as. Um, before I really get to the meat of the sermon here, I just wanted to have a sidebar note talking about it's a bit unnerving that this AI used the term human concepts of fairness and justice. And I wonder if it's not going to turn all 
overlord on us. We've seen enough dystopian future <laughs> and say that they have not met their human concepts, so they're going to try to flip this around and take over our internet. So That's not merely a human concept. Justice, each one of us knows justice. Sure, we have a social construct of justice. Our, our, our law courts uphold a social construct of justice. They do the best, but it is actually an echo that is built into the fabric of reality. There are things, we all know it, that ought not to be. There are things that are just not right and need to be put to rights. It's not merely a human construct, human concept. It is an absolute concept built into the fabric of reality, built by a creator, an absolute truth. But that hits on something key. And we can't avoid it when we talk about the love of God, which our theme is this morning. What does God's love look like when we know that God's justice is perfect? That's what the Bible says. And how can God love an unjust people in an unjust world? How does God's love and God's justice reconcile? This is something that ChatGPT, the chatbot, did not address this morning, so we're going to leave it in the dust. Um, somewhat favorite take on, on what love is. It took hold of the, church, the evangelical church I grew up in in the 90s, and it, it was popularized at least in part by C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Um, it used the idea, or it uh, built on the idea that there are four um, different Greek words, common Greek words of uh, the time of Jesus when the New Testament was written that were used to describe love. We have one word, we have love. They had four words. Uh, the first word is eros. It's a lover's love. It's um, erotic, passionate love, possibly disordered, but not necessarily. This word isn't actually found anywhere in the New Testament. There was phileo or philea. city of Philadelphia is the brotherly love city. It's brotherly love. It's a love of friendship and emotional love. There's storge. Storge is, is parental love. It's that natural, instinctual love that parents have for their children or children have for their parents. It's an emotional love, but it's just natural. And then there was agape love. And, and we were told in the 90s that agape love is the perfect, heavenly, divine, selfless love. It's an it's, it's a, a act of willed self-sacrifice for the good of another. This scheme sat good with my soul because my need to systematize, to, to stack things in nice, neat, tidy columns in my brain, um, it, it made sense. However, it quickly becomes apparent that the writers of Scripture didn't think they needed to stay within that scheme. Um, it's perhaps most evident in the fact uh, that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the one that Jesus read from, the Septuagint, uses the word agape to describe how Amnon loved Tamar, his half-sister. And if you're not familiar with the story, I won't go into the details, but it was not in an agape way. It was more in an eros. It was very much in an eros way. So the writers of Scripture didn't stick to this. So we must put that scheme aside. That scheme won't work for helping us to describe the love of God. Not that it's wrong, not that agape love isn't something beautiful to talk about, but that's just not what we're going to use this morning. What scheme must we use then? What does it mean to say that God is love? Is God's love truly unconditional 
is this concept found in the Bible. And what do we do with the passages of Scripture that, that deal with aspects of God that don't seem so loving in our estimation of things? Um, Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 5.5, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all the evildoers. Proverbs 15 talks about how God hates. There's an abomination, workers of iniquity, um, uh, the thoughts, the sacrifices of the wicked. Malachi and Romans, God hates Esau. Jacob, he loves, but hates Esau. In Revelation, God hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. How are we to make sense of this all? Is God's hatred antithetical? Is it, is it contrary to God's love? What about God's wrath towards unrighteousness? If we're going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, um, this thing properly, we might as well ask, what is the proper way to show love towards evildoers? Perhaps start with this. What is the most loving thing a parent can do towards a disobedient toddler? The, the obvious answer is to discipline that toddler. And the expected answer for us is that God disciplines evildoers. And thankfully, in, in his infinite grace, he does that sometimes. Sometimes. Yet, there are times... When God gives the wicked over to their desires. Romans 1, 24. Allowing the wicked what they desire, but foregoing any opportunity to lovingly reprove and discipline them. With, with all these questions, it, it becomes very apparent that the question, what does God is love mean, it is a difficult one. It's a nuanced one. It's, it's one that cannot be answered very simply. And I fear I've given... You this morning, nothing but questions. No answers. Part of me was afraid to tackle this topic this morning because of the difficulties uh, it contains. I mean, isn't love more of a, of a poet's topic and less of a systematician's one, less of a mathematician's one? I feel a bit like a math nerd trying to put forward an equation that solves God's love when it would be so much more fitting to be a poet and, and to write a sonnet about it. Frederick Lehman writes, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. If you're familiar with that hymn. I... I believe this old hymn. I do not mean to detract from the beauty of God's love by dissecting it this way. Uh, yet there remain these nagging questions in my brain. How do we reconcile the passages that talk about God's hatred for evil and evildoers? How do we reconcile God's love and God's justice in a wicked world? How does God's sovereignty play into this equation. Okay. 
little afraid. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm a little afraid <clears throat> that I'm losing my voice, for one. <clears throat> I'm a little afraid that I've built this up, all these questions, to make you think I'm going to answer them all. <laughs> I am going to disappoint some of you, most of you, but I will do my best to answer some. And there is some that are beyond the realm of our capabilities of reasoning. And, and I am just going to try to investigate what Scripture says and how Scripture frames the love of God. D.A. Carson, uh, he, he wrote a book. That's a beautiful book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's a difficult doctrine. It's a little tiny book, but he points out that there are at least five different ways that the Bible speaks about God's love. I'm going to use those five ways to talk about it, and we're going to use that as a launch pad for this morning. First, the first way is perhaps the most beautiful. It's this peculiar, unique way that God, the love of the Father for the Son, and the love of the Son for the Father. It's the way God's love is self-contained. This mysterious, intra-Trinitarian love. It's described vividly in Scripture. It is clear that it is unique. It is, it is distinct from the other loves. It, it may be our best bet at visualizing, trying to visualize what today's passage asserts. God is love. The classic formulation of this is, is that from eternity past, love is one of the unique features binding the Godhead together. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds and communicates that love between the two. And there is a oneness. We're not going to try to say these are three gods. There is a oneness in the Godhead. And that is something unique to the, as far as monotheistic religions go, religions that worship one God, that is something unique to Christianity. There is this idea that God created us because he loved us. And although it's true he does, did love us, that's not his impetus, his cause for creating us. In fact, that's it's heresy. To say that God created because he needed to love us, there was a deficiency in him. That's not, that's not what Scripture says at all. Whom I made for my glory is what Scripture says. God did not have a deficiency or a need. He didn't have a man-shaped hole in his metaphorical heart that he needed to create us. He was abounding in love. The love shared between the Father and the Son and preceded and communicated by the Holy Spirit. John 3, 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And John 5, 20 For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Augustine writes, And the Holy Spirit, according to the Holy Scriptures, is neither of the Father alone nor of the Son alone, but of both. And so intimates to us a mutual love, wherewith the Father and the Son reciprocally love one another. It is truly this unique intra-Trinitarian, the, 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 the love within the Trinity. It is truly that unique love 
shared and communicated within the Trinity that makes Christian love unique, especially the love of God, different from all other gods. Any other monotheistic religion that would assert that their God loves them, that's introducing something to God that did not, he did not have, he did not contain before creation. It is an overflow of love, I'm sorry, an overflow of love contained and communicated within the Godhead. There is always an other orientation to the love of God in the Bible. The second way the Bible talks about um, the love of God is, is God's providential love over all that he has made. His providing love. Now, it, it is true that the Bible typically steers clear of using the word love in this connection, but the theme is clear. So maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but I still want to use this, this as a, a framework. God's provision of the rain and sun alone is evidence of a loving creator in a loving creation. Jesus tells us that God even clothes the li- lilies of the field in his gracious provisionary love. In, in, he gave you a life to live. He clothed you with his imago Dei the image and likeness. And that is why we can say to all of our neighbors who all contain the Imago Dei that God loves you, emanating from that intra-Trinitarian, from that love within himself, overflowing, abounding from that because of the Imago Dei contained within all of us. No matter how much we've marred it, and vandalized it. There's no way around that when we look at Scripture. Um, the third way the Bible speaks about the love of God is, is that he speaks of God's love in his saving stance toward his fallen world. So God's love in his saving stance towards his fallen world. We all know John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. First, understanding the love that he contained. First, first way the Bible communicates the love that he contained within himself. He, he gave up his son. He so loved the world. This word, world, has been subject to much scrutiny and study. Um, many people want to clarify and you know, add to the, the term. God doesn't love the whole world that much because if he did, then he wouldn't judge it so harshly or destine some for wrath. Which, it's evident in other parts of Scripture that God does judge, and there is some destined for wrath. And we must take Scripture as written and still try to wrestle with it and try to understand what's being said. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, we can give clarification. In the Gospel, John clearly says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This word translated world is, is the Greek word cosmos, where we get the English word cosmos from. It's, it's universe. It's everything. Um, it's 
been clarified in other areas. I'm not going to clarify here, but that John isn't specifically emphasizing here the bigness of the world, but in the broader context, the, the, the badness of the world. Elsewhere, John, the same gospel writer, John writes in 1 John that he writes the whole world, which it, it emphasizes the bigness of the world. So we can see that God's love for the world, his saving stance for the world, extends to both its bigness and its badness. It is God's love expressed in this way that causes him to send Jonah to Nineveh. The Ninevites, a a wicked people, a, a bad people, an enemy of his chosen people, causing his nation, the nation of Israel, so much pain and suffering. He sends Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. In Ezekiel 33.11, it says, Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Paul says in Timothy that that God desires that none should perish. There is truly a way in which the Bible communicates that God's love extends universally. And yet, Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He is sovereign. Again, I'm afraid I've set up this whole argument in such a way that I've given you the impression that I'm going to be able to answer all these questions, and I'm going to disappoint a lot of you this morning. But I am merely trying to take Scripture at its face value, trying to make sense of it. This um, inevitably leads to the next way the Bible speaks about God's love. The fourth way in which the Bible speaks about God's love is God's particular, effective, electing love toward his people. That's God's particular, effective, electing love toward his people. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then amongst the most beautiful terms in all of Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There's no avoiding it. It says over and over and over again in Scripture that God sets his affections on his people. 
Josh's sermonette, mini-sermon on, uh, on the Love Advent Candle Day hit on that. Now, I want to say that this is the farthest thing from God falling in love with you, as is popularized by our current ethos. That is not the kind of love. God intentionally sets his affections on his people before the foundation of the universe. Nothing about his love for his people is accidental, unintentional, or unplanned. This is distinct from those other two types of love for his people that we've, that were for, for his world that we've talked about, the provisionary love that he has for everyone, because it is clear from Scripture that not everyone is provided this particular love. It is also distinct from the universal love in the saving stance he has for his big, bad, fallen world, because in spite that love, the saving stance love, that love is sufficient for all. This love is effective for some. It's effective in applying the perfect righteousness of Christ on our behalf. Justifying declaring righteous. This effectively reconciles God's love and God's justice in some. Paul tells us that God is both just and the justifier in Romans 3.26. And then I love that Jen sang the song this morning that, O fount of love, Matt Boswell writes, O mount of grace, to thee we cling. From the law hath set us free. Once and for all on Calvary's hill, love and justice shall agree. It means that those who find themselves in possession of the title, justified one, or child of God, no longer children of wrath, as Ephesians says, no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but child of God, if you find yourself in possession of that title, you can call your father Abba Father. That is a gift. But this type of love reminds us that we are not special or have not merited this favor in any way. We are not smarter or better than those who are not in possession of the title, child of God. Those who have the title, child of God, are such because we have had a heavenly father who set his affections on us. We were bought at a price. We are not our own. This uh, particular way of speaking about God's love leaves lots of people feeling unsettled. Um, and I, I contend that this morning and, and throughout the week, we spend some time wrestling with this in our hearts. It, it is very clear throughout Scripture. If we're going to take Scripture at face value, it is very clear that God has a unique choosing love for his people. I will add this important asterisk, though, 
whenever the Bible speaks of this kind of love, it is not to embolden those who find themselves in possession of that love. It's not to, it's not to puff up the chests of the elect. Rather, it is to cause the elect to acknowledge the very first truth of election. There is nothing special about us. There's nothing better than our neighbor who does not possess that title. The biblical motif of election, the theme of election has to be read in that way. It has to be read in a way that humbles us. Cause us to acknowledge the greatness of the gift. How much sweeter the gift is when we understand that. John uh, 15 verses 13 to 14 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Um, fifth, and, and, and lastly in this scheme today, the Bible speaks sometimes of God's uh, provisionary, provisional, I should say, or conditional love towards his people conditioned by their obedience. And this is a tough one. But I would be remiss, I'd be negligent if we didn't touch on it, because Scripture touches on it. We just, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. (laughs) This is a tough saying. And it's certainly a one-sided saying. We can't turn the tables on Jesus and say, Jesus, you're my friend if you do what I command you. Like, that's just not how this works. I can't even do that to Craig and say, Craig, you're my friend if you do what I command. It, It doesn't work. It's Jesus sits in a special position to be able to do that. It's important to note that Jesus, or, or, or God for that matter, is never described in the Bible as our friend. Abraham is God's friend, but the, the inverse, the reverse, is never stated. Uh, it's as if the human authors of Scripture, so divinely inspired, understood something. Uh, what is it that they understood? I, I will argue that it is a difference of authority or, or position. Jesus here in John 15, is speaking to us as a peer, as a friend, as as a man. And he is that. In one sense, he is with us on our level. He is Emmanuel. We just celebrated Christmas. God with us in his incarnation. Yet, in another sense, he is above us. He is our maker, our creator. He is speaking to a truth that is built into the very fabric of of reality, a reality of his making. Now, don't mistake me. I'm not saying it's sinful to say Jesus is my friend. I'm not. It's just as long as we remember who he is. He is the most high God. He transcends us. God is our friend. Sure. But the authors of scripture never, never put it in there. And I, and I would just say that that's, there's a reason why it's never stated God is our friend. We've been going through Ecclesiastes. And it says in Ecclesiastes, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, 
and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We are reminded to remember our place. We are reminded that God is in heaven above and we are on earth below. Circling back to this fifth um, difficult way of talking about God's love, God's conditional love for his people. I thought God's love was unconditional. And we have to affirm it, it is. His justifying love is without preconditions. Yet scripture is clear this conditional love is a unique type of love reserved for those who are justified. It is the command to remain or abide in Christ. And the implicit, the implication is, if you're not abiding in, you are removed from. If you're not remaining in, you are stepping back from God's love. You are not in God's love. John 15.10 says, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus demonstrates what this looks like. In his, in his incarnation, he subordinates himself from God and, and perfectly keeps the Father's commandments. He lived the perfect life we could not live and then died the death that we all deserve to die. Carson uh, employs an excellent analogy to kind of make this, to bring this message home. Uh, He tells of a scenario where a soldier is enlisted to serve under a superior officer, say a general in an army. And this this soldier is serving as an aide for this general. And yet this soldier has a relationship with this general outside of the military structure, outside of the rank and file. And maybe even knows him. Maybe like an uncle, like, a, like, a, like his father's best friend. He has a close, intimate relationship with his father. Now, the superior officer still has authority over, command over the junior-ranking officer. The general has, has rank. And the junior officer has to obey the commands. But the way that dynamic works looks differently than if the general was assigned an aide that he didn't know at all. There would be no relationship. There would be nothing. There would be, there would be no, uh, no, no communication, no, no, no revelation, revealing of what was going on behind the scenes. And yet, with this junior officer knowing and being closely knit to the general, It doesn't change the need for obedience. But there is a difference in knowing, in the knowledge of, in the intimacy that there is in the relationship. So those are the five. In conclusion there, there's God's unique intra-Trinitarian love, this other orientation of his love that, that overflows. There's God's provisionary love for the whole of creation, clothing even the lilies of the field. There's God's love expressed in his saving stance for the world. We see that in his command to send Jonah to the Ninevites. Then there's God's special selecting love for his people 
as we saw in Ephesians 2. And then there's God's conditioned love that's conditioned upon us abiding in him, abiding in him, obeying his commands. There's a discomfort we feel. There's a discomfort I feel in unpacking all this. There's a discomfort of acknowledging there are areas in my heart, in my mind, that I have not fully abided in God's love. Being a Christian can be miserable at times. Sin doesn't feel natural because God is in our life. And God doesn't feel fully natural because we still have indwelling, ongoing sin. Hebrews 12 comforts us, reminds us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom receives. And that same passage ends with reminding us that our God is a consuming fire. He is a refining fire. This, your first sermon of 2023, I want you guys to remember the beautiful nature of God's love. I want you to rest in the truth that if you are in Christ, you are justified without preconditions. You are declared righteous. And if you are justified, then you will be glorified, which means you will be sanctified. This is not something that is up for debate. close with prayer and then we're going to have celebrate the Lord's Supper and I pray that that will be our um, our resolve our New Year's resolution is just to rejoice in God's love close with me Father God I thank you so much that you have loved us that you have set your affections on us and I pray that as we wrestle with all these ways that we talk about your love, that they would start to impact us, change us, transform us. And God, I pray that you would reveal in our hearts and our minds where we have not abided in you, where we have felt discomfort in your love and and, and wiggled away. Transform our hearts and our minds evermore. Give us knowledge of you evermore. Ask all these things in your name. Amen. O fountain divine that flows from my Savior's where sinners trace their filthy rags for his righteousness mercy cleansing every stain now rushing over us like a flood there the wretch and vilest one stand
God alone. 